I'm, I am constantly amazed uh, as a pastor and as someone who has the great privilege of studying God's Word regularly and, and really getting, you know, just taking time to dig into things, um, at how many texts of Scripture are, are arenas that, in my opinion, are not like front and central in Christendom. John chapter 5 is not one of those passages that usually pops to your mind as saying this is a, an important passage of Scripture because it declares and uh, it, you know, gives a, a great example of why Jesus is equal with God. And um, I'm just excited to be in this chapter. I'm excited to, to be walking through John's gospel with you and, and learning as I'm going and being amazed at what we're seeing and the impact of it. Um, it's just, uh, I just rejoice at it, and I'm just really thankful that we can gather together and we can study this together and then continue interacting on it at our home groups. And I just want to encourage you to, uh, you know, to be a part of that whole process so that we're not just hearing, we're also working it out together. Um, so the question for us this morning as we begin is this, is Jesus who he claims to be? Is he truly the Son of God? Is he God or is he some human imposter? Is he just another radical that somehow got a following and it turned into a movement? Or was he truly God is he truly the Son of God? Is he the Son of Man? The Jews of Jesus' day, they accused him of a number of things. They accused him of being a Samaritan. They accused him of uh, being demon-possessed. They accused him of being insane. They accused him of, of having an illegitimate birth. These were all scandalous accusations that are given against Jesus in the Gospel of John. Now, I want to pause here for a moment. As we've gone through the, the gospel so far, a number of occasions, a number of times, we've identified the Jews this, the Jews that. And I want to be careful here that we don't think that when John is using the expression here, the Jews, he's talking about all Jews everywhere are thinking and acting and believing what is being talked about here. Because Jesus himself is a Jew, right? And many if not much of those who are following Jesus ultimately are Jews themselves. The, the Jews that Jesus is talking to here are primarily the religious um, elite of that day who are challenging then who Jesus is. I want to make sure we make that distinction because I don't want you to walk out of here and you come up and you start talking to someone who happens to be Jewish and it's like all of a sudden, okay, you know, this is them. No, it's not. This is talking about the religious leadership of that time who are now trying to you know, assess what's going on with this person who claims to be equal with God. Now, they could not deny his astonishing power, but they sought to explain it away, accusing him again of, of a, a satanic origin. We find that in the Gospel of Matthew. F.F. F. Bruce tells us um, that their successors reviled Jesus as, and here I quote, a transgressor in Israel who practiced magic, scorned the words of the wise, and led the people astray. That's not exactly who we understand Jesus to be, is it? Now, I would like for you just to notice in your handout, and even up on the screen, um, a man by the name of Edward Gibbon, a number of years ago, wrote The Decline and the Fall of the Roman Empire. probably heard about it. You may not have read it. 
It is a classic, but in that work, he says basically this, that all the religions of the world were regarded by, first of all, common people as equally true. So the common people of that first century, that first Christian century, viewed the religions of the world as equally true. Now, he says the philosophers of that day regarded the religions of the world as equally false. And then he says, in his observation of history, the magistrates of that day regarded religion as equally useful. You say, what does that have to do with anything? Well, is it okay for you to be a follower of Christ? Sure. All religions are fine. That's, that's the thinking here. All religions are fine. They're all just as equally true. Unless you happen to be a philosopher, then they're all equally false. But ultimately, if it helps you get through life, what? It's useful. That's the attitude. So there's this kind of, this, this kind of weird attitude that was true then. And the reason I share this with you as we prepare here is to say to you, things haven't changed much, have they? If you want to believe in Jesus, that's up to you, as long as you kind of keep it to yourself. But if it helps you get through life, that's okay. If you want to believe in Buddha, that's, that's okay. If that helps you get through life, that's okay. Well, we find some things that are a challenge for us with that kind of a thinking. The skeptics and the, and the liberals of the 18th and 19th centuries were intent on denying Jesus' deity. They certainly accepted him as a moral teacher. Um, they viewed his death on the cross primarily as an example of sacrifice for all to follow. In fact, uh, Gresham Machen would, would put it this way, that they would say that he is an example for faith, but not the object of faith. And you get the difference there, that we look to Jesus to be our example as to how to live, but we don't look to Jesus in faith. He is the example for us of what faith should look like. By his example. Okay. Well, that's not what Scripture reveals. And then in the last century, and I might say more recent time, we could say that Jesus has been rele relegated to a number of different levels to, to be a liberator of slavery, injustice, and the oppressed. Liberation theology. Take Jesus, use him as an example to say he brings freedom. But not freedom in the spiritual sense, freedom in the physical, living now sense. That's the distortion of who Jesus is, although Christianity does bring freedom, okay, in many ways. Um, he's been relegated to this warm and fuzzy friend who's your buddy and your co-pilot. If you have a Jesus is my co-pilot sticker on your car, can I encourage you? Black magic marker is really good. Just either tear it off or cross it out. He is far more than your co-pilot. But see, we have this kind, of, this, this kind of diminishing attitude toward Jesus is that is even present within Christendom. There, he, you know, he's relegated to being a, a supreme force that helps me through my struggles. He shows up only when I need him. I appeal to him in my very broad Christianity only when I'm in the worst scenario. Okay, then I'll talk about Jesus. He's that emotional crutch. He is the embodiment for some people of Political correctness. He is the embodiment of love. 
Now, friends, against all of these views, Christianity holds a unique position because Christians believe that God has spoken. And they believe that God has spoken clearly. And they believe that what God has spoken clearly is, in fact, true. So there's not this kind of fuzzy perspective as to who Jesus is. Christians actually believe statements and principles and um, realities about Christ that are revealed from God's Word, and they actually believe that what God's Word says is true. But in our culture that is shaped by humanistic and postmodern and sensually spiritual questions about Jesus, it, it, it is saying basically that Jesus is on trial. And friends, today, Jesus is on trial. He was on trial 2,000 years ago, and he's still on trial today. People are looking for a Savior, so to speak. They're looking for a solution. They're looking for answers, but ultimately, he is still on trial. But get this, even though he's on trial, the case is settled. The evidence has been on display, but people do not want to believe it. So now let's pick up the setting here of where we get to this particular passage, verse 17 and following. We've gone through last week this story, this narrative story of Jesus coming into um, Jerusalem to the, the pool of Bethesda, if you remember. And while he's there with all these different people, the sick, the lame, the blind, the struggling, the paralyzed, they're there. He finds one man who's been an invalid for 38 years. He interacts with him. Boom, he's healed. Ah, and John tells us, oh, by the way, it was the Sabbath. There's a lot of things we talked about as we looked at that passage about the man involved, but ultimately Jesus has a purpose here. Jesus ultimately is, is healing this man to declare himself and to build his case that he is God. And he's doing it on the Sabbath deliberately to bring attention to himself so that when he stands before these religious leaders, what is he saying? He is saying, listen, my father has been working but I am working now. Which was a statement by Jesus identifying himself as equal with God. And so these religious leaders are thinking to themselves, this is blasphemy, and we have to do something about this man. In fact, look at verse 18. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Not just persecute him. They weren't just intrigued with him like they were at one point in time. Now they want to kill him. The rest of the gospel is going to be this wrestling match between what Jesus is doing and these religious leaders wanting to snuff him out. Now they wanted to kill him because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling his own father him. God, his own father, making himself equal with God. So this is what they were saying, and it ultimately is what, Jew, what Jesus was doing. So chapter 5 is a defense of, his, of the fact that Jesus is equal with God. He will first establish his equality in his person, and then his equality in his work. When we talk about the person of Christ, you're talking about who he is. You're talking about you know, the attributes, what what. You know, what is his makeup? 
And we're talking about the work, it's talking about what he does, okay? How he then functions out of who he is. Now you'll notice the rest of our text today is divided into three sections that all begin with the expression, truly, truly. Did you catch that? Now I know you're familiar with those expressions, but those mark off three different sections. And and the, the expression, truly, truly, in some translations it says verily verily it literally means I tell you the truth and and even more so it means I'm telling you the truth that is without the possibility of contradiction in other words you must hear and accept what I have to say and when I when I you know read through this and just thought through those words truly truly and that that it meant I tell you the truth I'm reminded of one of my friends from Lebanon by the name of Edgar Trabulsi And every time I interacted with Edgar, when he began a sentence, he would always say, brother, let me tell you something. Or, I tell you the truth. I mean, it's it's like this. It's passion. There's, There's no middle ground. It either is or it isn't. And what's going on here is Jesus has just healed this man. He has just brought new life to this man. In the context of that interaction, he does speak to him and say, listen, you're well, but now deal with your sin. And then the religious leaders come and they, 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 they confront him and Jesus declares who he is. And, and now for the rest of this chapter, Jesus is speaking. And I want you to think about this. Jesus is not saying, hey, let's all sit down. I want to talk to you. This is passionate. This is um, a hard message that he is giving to these religious leaders because he goes on and on and on and on through this chapter. This is a long discourse, and it is in the context of those who want to do what to him? Kill him. So just think about what he's saying here and how he's doing it. And how he's speaking it. Now, let's just pause a moment and just ask for God's help, shall we? Lord, we thank you for your goodness. We are amazed, Lord, that you have smiled on us. Lord, even to give us a passage like this that reveals your Son in all his glory. Lord, give us... Give us eyes to see what you want us to see. Help us, Lord, to to soak in your truth, Lord, to feed on it today so that we will truly be nourished spiritually and be able to live it out. And, Lord, live with the confidence of what it is that you're showing us and how you're declaring your truth to us. And, Lord, I ask that if there is anything in our heart that is is present that would hinder us from fully uh, being humble before you today and being teachable, Lord, I ask that you would remove that. Or maybe it's a sin that we've been harboring. Lord, would you just take that away? Would you, would you, Lord, forgive that? May your children be crying out in their hearts, in the quietness of their hearts. Lord, forgive me. I want what you have for me today. Strengthen us, bless us, Lord, we ask in your name. Amen. Let's first of all then look at how Jesus claims to be equal with God. With, uh, with his father in particular, in his person. Jesus is equal in his person. I want to read verses 19 through verse 23 just again. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what 
he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. So first of all, um, Jesus is equal with the Father. Now, Ultimately, what does that mean? What does it mean to be equal with the Father? And there's, there's a need here for some clarification. Because what's not going on here is Jesus is not saying, I'm equal in the sense that I am another God who is equal with the God of Israel. As if there are two different gods going on here, and, and we just happen to be equal. He's not saying that I am equal but a competing God. Okay? What he is saying then is something far different. He is simply saying that I'm equal uh, with the Father in the sense that I am united intimately with the Father. He is equal. He is intimately united. He is one, we say, with the Father. And that brings us then, then from this word equal to this word united. His equality then is really an equality that is uh, that has as its, might want to say, its, its gel and its, its, uh, its cement, this being united with the Father. It's an e- equality that is based on unity. Okay? So John identifies then four aspects of Christ's unity with the Father, each distingu- distinguished here by the word for. But we're going to look at it in three different categories here. First of all, I want you to notice that he is united in his actions. Verse 19, so Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only that, or only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, the son uh, does likewise. And I want you to just home in on that word see. It is the son who sees the father. Now, what's interesting here, and I think helpful for us, is that in order to believe in the father, we have to see the father. But the issue here is this. We cannot see the Father. It is impossible for us to see the Father. No man has seen God and lived. But Jesus sees what the Father is doing in heaven and does it on the earth. And then Jesus, on the earth, because he's doing it on the earth, we see him and then we, as his followers, seek to live our lives in obedience to him. You get that? So Jesus, who has been in heaven, who is now on earth, has seen the Father, and now because of this intimate, united relationship, is living on this earth, having seen the Father, so that when he is living on this earth, we follow Jesus, who has seen the Father. We understand that what Jesus is doing is what the Father would be doing on this earth. They're they're united together. Now, that's just part of the package. Look at John chapter 14. John chapter 14, we read a little bit earlier as we began our time together, but John chapter 14 and verse 8, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen 
me has seen who? The Father. How can you say, show us the Father? So how am I to know about God? The answer is, see Christ and you will see God. There is nothing about Christ that is different in nature, in person, than there is about God, the Father. People are looking for a revelation of God. They are pursuing all different kinds of revelations in an attempt to see God. Turn your Bibles to Jeremiah 23. Jeremiah 23. And I want to home in on one verse of Scripture here, verse 28. And say, how does all this fit? You'll, you'll see in just a minute. Jeremiah 23 and verse 28. And, and the context here is, is God speaking to false, about false prophets and about true prophets. And just warning God's people about who they're going to listen to and all that. Okay? Verse 28 says this, Let the prophet who has a dream tell the dream, but let him who has my word speak my word faithfully. So the prophet that has a dream here is a false prophet. And friends, there will always be people who teach, who stand up before people, who say things that may be sensational, that may have kind of this, this uh, mystical, miracle dynamic to it. And, and God is basically saying, you know, let them do it and let them get on with it. But... Him who has my word, speak my word faithfully. Now, God is basically saying to us, listen, be careful. There's a lot of people out there that say a lot of things about what they think God is and who they think God is, and they claim a lot of things as being from God, but the person who's going to be faithful is going to represent God by lifting up his word, declaring his word, exposing his word, and pressing that down. So how am I to know about God? It's not through some sensational modern-day phenomenon. It goes back 2,000 years and recognizes that God has been revealed in the person of his Son, Jesus Christ. I don't need some present-day phenomenon for me to see God. I have God revealed in the pages of God's Word through the person of Jesus Christ. So what we have here in verse 19 is an affirmation that the Son of God, get this, has done and will do what the Father does and will do what the Father wishes. So Jesus has done and will do what the Father does and ultimately will do what the Father wishes. It is a link to the past. It is also obedience for all time. So Jesus didn't just show up as this little baby. He is God in the flesh, John says. It's there recorded for us for a reason, to help us understand that Jesus is not limited in time and space by his time on this earth, that although in the form of man, present with man on this earth, he is linked to God in the past, as well as is obedient in all his activities with his link to the Father. If you go to the temple of Luxor in Egypt, it's a religious temple 
um, uh, not, obviously not a, not a Christian temple, but you go there, you will find uh, an excavation, and you'll find these six columns, about 12 feet in diameter, um, about 80 feet high. Pretty amazing. And what's amazing about one of them is on top of one of them is a little house. And the story goes like this, that years ago, the city of Luxor, things were getting built up, and there was a farmer who was looking for a place to build a house. And so he went out outside the town, and he looked for some place where he could build his house. And, of course, he wanted a good foundation. He looked around, and all of a sudden, he kind of swept away, and he found you know, what he thought was bedrock. He said, ah, this looks pretty good. I'll build my house on this. So he builds his house on that. And then over time, and even as excavations were happening nearby, and the sand, as you know, was plentiful there, and the winds blew, slowly the sides of what now was this pillar begin to appear. And as the excavators came in, they began to pull down everything that was there and found out this house now was being built on top of this column that is 80 foot deep. Now, there's a reason why I want to share that picture for you. Some people, if they just say Jesus was a good man, he was a nice prophet, I'm going to build my life on his example, might say, hey, Jesus is my foundation. But friends, what we fail to realize is that Jesus as a foundation is not just a foundation for the church even. His roots go deep into the past of eternity, even though maybe we can't see it. It is there. And that's what's going on here as we jump into John's gospel. He's revealing a Jesus who is God, who is so connected to the past that he ultimately finishes with or begins with this statement in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God the same or he was in the beginning with God so he's not just this foundation that you built your life on he is a foundation that is rooted into eternity past incredible picture but a sure reality so Jesus then is united in his action secondly he is united in his in his love for the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. Uh, you just see this interplay between the Father and the Son, this, this, this interaction, this intimacy going on here. And he says the Father loves the Son. Now this is not the Greek word agape that you would think. This actually is the Greek word phileo which is the kind of love that is expressed between two people that has a, 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 an emotional side to it, a, a love of deep feelings, of warm affections. It is the kind of love that a father and a son would have for one another. And that's what's going on here. It's not just, oh, here is God the Father, boom, and then here is you know, God the Son, boom, and they're kind of separate. No, there's this intimacy. There's this wonderful familial intimacy that has taken place here. So this is the only time, by the way, that this word is used to refer to the Father's love for the Son. Um, it's the only time this, this particular word is used. And the present tense here indicates something for us, that this word, that this love is, is eternally uninterrupted, that this, this is an all-knowing love. 
There's no room for ignorance. So Jesus was in eternity past with the Father, having this intimate relationship. There is this love relationship going on as he's pressing on. Everything that Jesus is doing is what the, the Father desires for him to do. Everything that the Father does is the same thing that Jesus is doing. They're working hand in hand to accomplish the same goals. That's what Jesus is saying to these religious Jews. The third thing is they're united, or he's united in his responsibilities. Now notice this verse, um, in these verses, how Jesus takes on the responsibilities given to him by the Father. But the Father gives these responsibilities, hands them off, and is stepping away. These are his responsibilities now. But these are responsibilities that only God can have. Okay? So it's not just like you know, a delegated responsibility to one of my head angels. This is a responsibility given that only God can actually fulfill and accomplish because you have to be all-knowing, you have to be all-powerful, you have to be the creator in order to give life ultimately or to exercise or execute judgment. Here's the first thing then as part of his responsibilities, first 21. For as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. Just like the Father gives life, so the Son gives life to whom he wills. God is the creator and thus the creator of life. Your man is trying to create life, right? You go into some, you know, some uh, laboratory somewhere, there's some test tube where they're trying to create life somewhere. They're trying to do it. And you know, they might say, ah, we've created life. Well, the real test of that is going to be, can you raise someone from the dead? I mean, that's, that's really what we're talking about here, is, is, is creating something out of nothing. Only God can do that. But God demonstrates that life-giving power ultimately by the resurrection. So here's the other responsibility, and that is he is the executor or executor of judgment, okay? The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. So the Son then gives life just like the Father does. The Father then is not judging anyone, but gives that responsibility to the Son. Now to, to a Jewish person, steeped in their Judaism, steeped in the, might want to say, distorted Judaism of that day, Jesus saying this to them when they already want to kill you, is no small thing. I mean, he is going for the jugular. He is going right at them. He is hitting them with a demonstration clearly saying, I am equal with God. The Father has given life to me. He has given the responsibility of exercising judgment to me. And they would be saying, oh, wait a second. No, the only person that can do that is God. That's the point. That's who I am. Now, there's a couple of principles here, a couple of realities that I think are, are important for us to notice. Let's just step back a little bit from what we've looked at so far. Number one, there's an important principle here that we easily lose sight of. First of all, it is not initially our job simply invite, to invite people to consider Jesus Christ. There's far more at stake than that. Now, I know in our evangelism, in our, in our 
talking with other people, we are saying, hey, listen, would you consider this? I'm going to pray for you. you know, w- would you read this and think about it, and I'll get back to you. But, but ultimately, here's what's going on. One day, these people who you're talking to, neighbors, friends, co-workers, will stand before God, the judge. They will stand before Jesus as that one who is exercising judgment. Whether they're ready or not, it will happen. Are we willing to say that to them? Are you ready to stand before God? I know I want you to consider it, but you will meet him. That's what God's word says. You will meet him one way or the other. And friends, there's a need for us to, to have the full impact of that in, in, in our thinking about who God is as well as our understanding about how we share the faith. Because there is a sense in which this, this fear and dread of ultimate judgment is a means by which God quickens a life and, and, and alerts them to their need of a Savior. Sadly, too many people will wait, right? Until, ah, crisis comes, and then they will turn to God, but it will be too late then. Here's the second thing. We must be careful to not talk about the judgment as bad news. When you go to court and a righteous, fair, and all-knowing judge looks at all the facts and all the evidence, he is going to make a judgment, right? Now, I know a human court may not always result in the right answer, (laughs) but a divine court will always see all the facts, will see all those facts in the right light, and it will be fair, it will be just, it will be right. The judgment is good news because it means that a just and holy and righteous God is acting in complete and total fairness with mankind. Let me ask you a question. What would it be like if the judges of this country, knowing the facts to be true, chose to ignore those facts and judge however they felt that moment? What kind of society would we have? You say, one just like we have right now, right? (laughs) No, it would be far worse than that. You see, we, we have this kind of idea that the judgment is bad news. It's bad news for someone who is willing to reject God. But friends, it is good news because it's, it's God who is exercising his judgment completely and totally, fairly and justly and according to his character. It's good news. And part of the reason it's good news is because Jesus is both judge and savior. He says, yes, this person is guilty, but I died in their place. So I take all the responsibility. I take all the weight. I take all the wrath and the suffering on me. And he did that, and he accomplished that on the cross. See, it's good news. Now, there's a third thing here that is part of his responsibility, um, and that is, He is the receiver of honor. 
This is the reason for Christ to be united with the Father. All my Father, it's all, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. So the goal here then is, listen, we, we are united together in, in all of our actions and our activities. We're, we're united together in, in, all, in our love, just the way we, we, we show affection to one another and, and the way the Father is interacting with the Son. And then they're united together in their various responsibilities, in particular life and judgment, and then now just with this whole arena of honor. If you honor the Son, you honor the Father. If you honor the Father, you honor the Son. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Now, speaking to the Jewish crowd... What would that sound like? I'm telling you, I'm equal with God. And by the way, if you want to honor the Father, you're going to have to honor me. And if you do not honor me, guess what? You do not honor the Father. To them, those were fighting words. Okay? I mean, he's going right at them. Either you accept me as God or you dishonor the Father. Shift gears a little bit here. Jesus now equal in his work. Jesus equal in his work. Now, we, we've already been given what he does so far, but the rest of the passage here fleshes that out, um, and we see now this, this ongoing work of Jesus Christ. He is the giver of life. He is the executor, or if you want to say it, the executor of judgment, and this has application both in the present spiritually and in the future Physically, this is an already aspect to the work of Christ, which also has a not-yet dynamic. You may have heard the expression before, the already-not-yet. It is what Jesus Christ has done. Ultimately, it's what Jesus Christ will do, but it also includes this overlap of what's already been done and what will take place and us living in the context of both. Let me explain. If you're a child of God today... You are already his child. You are already a citizen of, his, of, of the kingdom, right, spiritually speaking. But you're still here. So you're, you're already, but you're not yet in that place with him in eternity. So there's this tension in this already not yet context, and that's what he's fleshing out here in the next few verses. First of all, let's look at this already spiritual life and resurrection. Verse 24 here, this is talking about the spiritual arena. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Now, friends, this is what happens when, when, when you are regenerated. John chapter 3, when God draws you to himself, when he breathes life into you, it is, it is evident by, uh, by these things that you have eternal life. You hear God's word. You believe what God's word is saying. And then you are protected from judgment because spiritually you've passed from death to life. There's this wonderful thing that is going on here, but I want you to notice in this passage it says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who has sent me has eternal life, not will have eternal life. It's already evident that this is what you have. This is your possession. This remains in you. You have this. It's a spiritual move from death to life. 
And this is reinforced in John chapter 17 and verse 3. You just listen to it. And this is eternal life, Jesus says, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This is eternal life, that they know you. They have you. But that knowledge is only found through the person of Jesus Christ. How is it that anyone can get to God? They get to God through Christ. They see God through Christ because he has seen the Father. That's why he says later, right? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except what? Through me. So this is the already. Dick Lucas says, listen, if, if, you really, if you really want to know God, memorize verse 24 of chapter 5. Just put it to memory. Meditate on it. Think on it. And you'll grasp the gospel. You'll grasp what, what is taking place. That might be something for you to consider as you go home. Now let's think about what, what I'm calling the already not yet. This is physical life and death or physical life and resurrection. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here. Okay, so it is coming and is now here. There's this not yet dynamic, is coming and is here. Do you already? You get that? Okay. When the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. Now let me explain to you what I think is being talked about here. This is a future look to, to um, life that is going to be granted, but this is a physical life that is going to be granted. There is a physical reality that one day we are going to be reunited with our bodies. There's a physical reality that even when we pass from death, we are going to be in the presence of God spiritually, but there is going to also be a physical dynamic for us all who are believers and for all who are unbelievers too. So I think what's going on here is this. There is a future reality of physical life and resurrection. I'll get to that in just a minute. But he says, and is now here. What is the and is now here? Jesus is referring to himself. I am here. I am the one who has within himself the power to grant life, and that would be physical life to whomever I choose, and it's the same power that will be harnessed in order to provide a resurrection. You say, well, where does that come from? And how do we know that? Well, think about the story of Lazarus. Jesus comes on the scene. He's been dead for how long? At least four days. He's been in the tomb for four days. And Jesus comes and he says, Come forth, Lazarus. Power to raise Lazarus from the dead. It's already here. And it's the same power that is going to be harnessed to raise the dead. So I think that's the idea here. There's this already reality, but there's also the not yet. This is still yet to come. Verse 27, And he has given him authority to execute judgment. Because he is the Son of Man. Get your Bibles and turn back to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. For those of you that have been with us through this series, 
this expression son of man you probably already know is a favorite of Jesus but as we looked back in John chapter 1 um, and in particular verse 51 we found this and he said to him truly truly I say to you you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man the idea there was that Jesus was revealing himself as the son of man to be the mediator between heaven and earth so here he's identifying himself as the son of man he is the son of man now um, who is exercising judgment because he is the son of man so as the son of man he is mediator between the father and mankind he is also the judge and the jury he's the witness and the substitute he is the representative and the defender all of these things are happening in Jesus Christ as this mediator as this one who is standing there for us on our behalf in this legal setting But he has this authority to exercise this judgment. So we're told that there will be two resurrections. Verse 28, two resurrections. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice. Get that. All who are in the tombs will hear his voice. And come out those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So the two resurrections here are a resurrection of life and a resurrection of judgment, right? Resurrection of life to those who have done good, a resurrection of, of judgment to those who have done evil. Now, this is not, and I say this, this is not affirming a works-based salvation at all. What this is identifying is that those who are bearing fruits and that fruit is evidence of this new life in Christ, those are the ones that are going to be, the resurrect, be resurrected to life. Their bodies are going to be reunited um, with, with their souls and spirits. Okay? This, this reuniting is going to take place. Those who have, uh, who, who have uh, been exercising evil works, um, those are, uh, that should be the fruit then ultimately of unbelief. See? So unbelief has fruit. True belief in life has its own fruit, and it's evidenced by its fruit. We go to, you know, to James, you find out, you know, I'll show you my faith by my works, all right? It's not, it's not that your works save you, but the, those works are the fruit of this new life that you have in Christ. That's the idea, okay? And then verse 30 is really a summary statement, wrapping, wrapping around again to what he has already said, that he is equal and united with his Father. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. The Father has given me responsibility. I do those responsibilities, and you know what? It is his will when I do it. I'm equal with God. Now, there are three concluding thoughts that I have that flow out of this text. And if you were here last week, they are not your, okay? Just in case you were wondering about that. Last week, we had a PowerPoint problem, and we didn't know what the answer was. But here we have three. And here, uh, these, these scream out of this text, for us, for we who are God's children, for we who may be gathered here today, and I just want to make sure we take time to go through these and to see now the application side just, just pressing 
on our hearts and helping us to do what God wants us to do for his glory. First of all, there is a call to hear and to believe. And I want you to go back and I want you to look at verse 24. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. There is a call here then for we who are reading this, for anyone who is reading John's gospel, to hear the evidence, right? Because it's just evidence upon evidence, heaped upon evidence, heaped upon evidence. John 20, 30, and 31, right? These things I have written unto you that you may have, what? That you may believe, and that by believing you may have life, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. I can't remember, I can't quote it properly there. Sorry about that. But you get, you get the idea. There's this evidence that leads to belief, that leads to life. And here's what he's saying is, listen, hear and believe when you see the evidence. And friends, as you are going through this gospel, if there's any part of you that is questioning whether or not you are truly a child of God, John here and Jesus, his words, are screaming at you, pleading with you to listen, to hear, and to believe what is being revealed for you, what is on display. When you hear and you believe, it is evidence that there is life within you. Now, friends, it's so easy for us to be a part of a church, even a church plant, which means that you know you're, you're, you might be giving up other niceties that other churches to come and invest yourself into a church plant that is very simple and streamlined. By the way, I like it that way. But friends, it's possible for, for you to simply be going through the motions because you're a part of something. And friends, it's more important that you are part of the kingdom than you are part of something and going through the motions. And if God has brought you to Gateway simply that, so that we can walk through the Gospel of John and you can be hit and hit and hit by evidence and evidence and evidence, and you're saying, well, maybe, and maybe, and maybe, I want to encourage you to believe what you're seeing. To be humble and teachable so that you will, you will see what is true over and over and over again in this Gospel. And it's not going to stop. It's just going to continue, and it's going to continue because John has his goal that you will have life, and ultimately you will have that life that is abundant. And that's not a health, wealth, and prosperity thing. It's saying that only with Christ as your Savior can you truly live. So hear and believe. The next thing I want you to notice is from verse 23. There's a call to honor the Son. We didn't take too much time there deliberately because I knew we would come here. It says that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. What does that mean? What does it mean to honor the Son? To honor the Son means, first of all, that we acknowledge that He is who He says He is. Secondly, it means that we submit to Him and His teaching. Now listen, Jesus is in this, this discourse appealing to the fact that he is equal with God, that he's united with God. If you say, well, you know, I just don't know if that's true. He's just a man. He's just an example. He's just a good prophet. That attitude, friends, is not honoring the Son. Because you are not acknowledging Jesus for who he is revealing himself to be. 
In fact, many times, even within the umbrella of Christianity, we want to pick and choose what parts of our understanding of God that we like and that we want to enjoy. We want the good parts rather than the full parts. And Jesus says, this is who I am. I'm the one who gives life, and I'm the one who makes the decisions in the judgment. And if you're willing to receive that, you're honoring me, at least one part of it, right? The second part there was submitting to him and his teachings. Listen to John Stott. He just reinforces this. If Jesus, who thus taught with authority, was the Son of God made flesh, we must bow to his authority and accept his teaching. We must allow our opinions to be molded, and his, or molded by his opinions or views to be conditioned by his views. And this includes his uncomfortable and unfashionable teaching. He doesn't say pick and choose what I say. He says take it all. He doesn't say pick and choose what parts about me you like. He says take it all. He doesn't say pick and choose between what part of the Trinity you're actually going to hold to. You're taking the Godhead in all of its glory. Now, the friends, the question I have for you is this. Is it your desire to honor the Son? When you're reading through God's Word, well, let's pause. If you are reading through God's Word, all right, God's children need to be honoring Him, and one of the ways they do that is by actually listening to what He has to say, taking time to read His Word, absorbing it, as if, it is the very words of God, and we know that it is. So why is it that we wouldn't want to pick it up? And it may be because you have a heart that may be regenerated, but you have kind of pushed God away because there's some things in your life that you don't want him to touch on. And friends, that's not honoring him. So when God's word reveals something about your walk with him, maybe an attitude, an attitude of anger or bitterness or, or, or forgiveness, uh, some area in which you, you are struggling, some area in which you know you just you don't want to be pushed and squeezed and, and molded. You're, you're like that person at the dentist. Anyone here like to go to the dentist? It's a wonderful experience. I know there's a few of you strange people around, yes. Um, but you know what? We, we just, we, we're there, and they're picking away at all that they want to do, and there's a sense in which, guys, guess what? That's what we need to do with God. We may not like to go in and have anyone pick around at our teeth, but God comes and he picks around and pokes in our heart. And friends, if there's anyone for us to trust, it is he. And we honor him when he says, um, you need to look at this. Because this behavior, this attitude, this sin does not reflect what I came into your life for you to live like. Here's how you deal with it. Confess your sin. Follow my wisdom. Do these things. Okay, God, I want to honor you, so I'm going to recognize that you are a great God who has all knowledge and all wisdom and knows what's best, and you're fair and you're just, and, and you know me better than I know myself. I'm going to trust your person, and now I'm going to do your will. I'm going to follow your advice, and I'm going to listen to your teaching. That's honoring him. Now, friends, 
we must all acknowledge the fact that we don't always live there, right? But that's what he's calling us to do. And there's a third cry here, and that is that we listen to his voice. I don't know about you, but there's something about the Lord's return that is compelling, that is beautiful. Verse 28, do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice. And come out those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. It's not going to be the Father's voice. It's not going to be the Spirit's voice. It's going to be Christ's voice that will call believers and unbelievers to resurrection. Now, friends, listen. Someone with a trumpet can go into a cemetery. They can go into a morgue, and they can play until they are completely and totally drained of energy, but they will not conjure the dead to life. There's only one voice that can do that, and that is the voice of Jesus Christ himself. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. You know this passage I know you know this passage, but it's so helpful for us right now as we think through what Jesus is saying. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 52, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. There's going to come a time and it's going to happen so fast. In a twinkling of an eye, boom, boom. And the cry is going to come, and the dead will be raised. Some will be raised to life. Some will be raised to judgment. Now, I'm not exactly sure how, what that will look like. You know, is it going to be something like Star Trek where we're all kind of, you know, beamed up somehow? And um, is it going to be kind of like Ezekiel's picture where, um, where, you know, bones will kind of join up together and the sinews will get there and the muscles and all of that will come together. I don't know exactly what it's going to be like for we who are God's children, but what I do know based on 1 Corinthians 15 is that we will receive new immortal bodies. We will experience the fullness of what we have tasted on this earth. And friends, we only have a, just a little picture of what heaven and glory is going to look like. This week, I had the privilege of overseeing at a, at a funeral, and I, and I shared what I'm going to share right now at that because this is, this is really helpful for me, and I hope it was helpful for those who were there. But C.S. Lewis, in his Narnia series, his, his last book called The Last Battle, Aslan tells Peter and Edmund and Lucy that they, they have all died in a railroad accident. And he, he's speaking to them, and this is what Lewis writes, and and as he, that's Aslan, spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion. But all things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all stories, and we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. Now, friends, that's not pie-in-the-sky stuff. This is rooted in history. This is rooted in, in all that the, the Word of God reveals about life and creation and what God is accomplishing and His redemption and His promise of glory. 
But, he says, for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now, at last, they were beginning chapter 1 of the great story which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. And we who are raised to life have that to look forward to. You are right now drawing your cover page. What does it look like? Friends, once you pass from death to life, physically, if you're a child of God, you've already passed from death to life spiritually. It simply means that your physical passing is a step into eternity with God. Where that real story begins in heaven with him. Now listen, the only person that can make a claim like that is one who identifies himself as God, equal with God. Not equal in the sense of I'm like him and I'm competing with him or another God, equal in the sense of I'm intimately united with him. And because that is true, what I do is what God does. What I think is what God thinks. How I love is how God loves. My responsibilities are the same responsibilities that God has. And I carry them out and I exercise them for the glory of the Godhead. Jesus says, I am equal with the Father. Listen to me. Honor me. Lord, help us today to wrap our hands around this beautiful self-revelation Jesus gives about himself. Oh Lord, it certainly isn't talking about every dynamic of the attributes of who Jesus is. But Lord, it certainly gives us a picture of, of how much he is God. He is completely and totally like his Father. And Lord, I, I, just, I just thank you for the, the reassurance, Lord, of that reality. Lord, how clearly you've revealed that to us. And Lord, as even as we look next week, that's going to be revealed again and again and again through a number of witnesses. And Lord, help us as we go through this chapter to see ourselves as people who are laying around a pool, who need help, who are desperately consumed with our own sinfulness, but God comes and enters into our lives. He breathes life into to us who are totally helpless and hopeless. And, and Lord, we give you all the glory for any life that you accomplish in us. And Lord, for the eternal life that you give us. And Lord, as we look at you afresh today, we see again that you are God. You are who you claim to be. And you are worthy to be worshipped. And you're worthy to be listened to and obeyed. And Lord, you are to be honored as the Son, as the Son of God, and as the Son of Man. Lord, we adore you. We are humble because we fail in truly acknowledging and recognizing the magnitude of who you are. Lord, forgive us for that. Help us to grow in that. And help us, Lord, now to take these things and to, to 
to see them, Lord, affix themselves to our walk with you. We ask in your precious name. Amen.